All right, well, uh, we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And I'm going to start remembering to write down the page numbers for the Pew Bibles, because I forget uh, to do that. But before we read the Scripture tonight, before I read the Scripture uh, tonight, uh, I, want to, I want to give a little bit of context. I want, to, I want to paint a little bit of a picture for you, because I think um, the background is important to this uh, scene we're going to read about tonight. Uh, so there's a couple things that I think we need to remember as we're getting into the story. And the first thing we need to remember is the idea of the Sabbath because it just means a little something differently for those that are in the story than it probably does for you. Now, you may have grown up in a very religious household. You may have grown up in a house that uh, was big on honoring the Sabbath. Uh, and, that's, and we were that way. There's a lot of things we didn't do on Sundays. Um, but you have to understand that in the context of what we're going to be reading, the Sabbath was a much bigger, deeper, and larger um, thing for the ancient Jews than, you know, sacrificing Chick-fil-A once a week, which, of course, is always Sunday is when you want it, right? That's just how it works. That's the burden we must bear as good Christians. It was a fundamental part of who they were. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about God providing manna uh, for the Israelites after they were rescued from Egypt, right? God rescued, Egypt, rescued them from slavery in Egypt, but rescued them to the desert, which seems like a bad plan. We want to usually be rescued from a desert, not to a desert. But God was trying to do a couple things with the Israelites. He was trying to get the Israelites out of slavery, but he was also trying to get slavery out of the Israelites, right? So for a generation, uh, these former slaves are in the desert. They're wandering, and they're following only God's presence, and they're provided for every day by manna that shows up on the ground, that they can't take more than they need for that day, or it rots, but every day they're provided for. And that starts to form who they are. Well, another thing that happened in the desert uh, is the Sabbath. Uh, this is something that we, we tend to think about it as, well, on the seventh day, God rested and all that, and, and there's some ties there, but it was in the desert that God gave the Sabbath to the people. Again, a people who, were only, who only knew slavery for generations, right? Their, their only kind of value and purpose in the world was work. It was what they produced for other people, but what they produced. And so once a week, God told God's people, don't work. Don't do anything. Your value is not based on what you produce. You're not a, a cog in the great machine of this world. You have value and importance just based on who you are. Take a day a week and rest. And that is a fundamental part of Jewish life. Um, it's not just an arbitrary rule. It's part of what makes them who they are. It's part of how they became God's people. And uh, after that time in the desert, uh, throughout the religious history, um, there was... Uh, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of, uh, of theology and midrash kind of worked out to try and talk about how do we honor the Sabbath? How many steps can you take? How many steps can't you take? What do you do to make sure you don't violate this thing that is so important to us, right? So it was one of those things that made God's people God's people. And, and, I, and I need to point that out because as we read about someone who's a stickler for the Sabbath, it's going to be easy just to kind of villainize them like, oh, they're just like rules. No, this was actually a very important thing. Right? And, and secondly, in Jesus' day, we remember Israel is kind of captive again. They're not slaves in the same way they were in Egypt, but they are under the thumb of Rome. They're taxed heavily. They're crying out to God once again. They're looking for a Messiah, and they're hoping that Messiah will deliver them from Rome the way the people were delivered uh, in, in Exodus from Egypt. And a large percentage of uh, the religious leaders of the time believed that that delivery from God was going to come once the people of God acted right. 
Once they started doing the things they're supposed to do and acting like God's people again, and they were pure in their worship and all these things, that's when the Messiah is going to come. So there is a lot on the line. Sabbath is a core part of who they are, and obeying the rules, acting the way we're supposed to as God's people, is how God's going to come back and save us, right? So there's a lot on the line here. And I want to bring both those things up, again, because uh, there's enormous implications for them. And before we get too high and mighty with the religious leaders in our story, um, who are absolutely the bad guys, no doubt about it, but keep all this in mind. And I think um, what, I, what I'm going to assume is that uh, the hypocrites in this story uh, were wrong, but they were sincerely wrong. That they had good reason to make the decisions they did, to believe what they did. They had chapter and verse and literally hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition and they missed it, but they were sincere. So let's not get too high and mighty with them, right? The Sabbath matter, pure religion would save the people. The stakes were high. All right, enough background. Let's get into the text. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 says this. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, interesting, not to Jesus, but to the crowd, there are six days on which work can, ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all of his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that had been uh, that being done by him. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. So I've been trying to, I've been struggling this week with this sermon, to be honest with you. And all week I felt like I can't talk about this story without some confession. Uh, I wanted to write a sermon about all the religious hypocrites out there in the world. And the list is long, and it was going to be a fireball and I was going to feel pretty good about myself. But I feel like I need to be honest, and I don't think it would be, I think it would be wrong to locate uh, this sin elsewhere when it's so prominent in my own life, and my own history. I have a lot of examples of this very kind of hypocrisy. A lot of them I could share. We don't have enough time for all of them. But for, for some reason this week, one particular person and one particular story that I hadn't thought about in years just kept coming to mind. So we're going to have confession time right now, and I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, but, you know, blame Jesus. My story takes place in 1993. I was a freshman in college, and I met a guy named Nick, and Nick was a senior in the youth group uh, that I had recently been asked to help come and lead after I kind of graduated out of that youth group. I had attended it my senior year uh, because there was a cute girl in the group. 
which is the reason why I did most things my senior year in high school. And I was unsuccessful in impressing her, as was generally the rule for me at that time as well. For some reason, uh, the youth leader saw something in me and asked me to come and help, right? Now, I was only a year older than Nick, uh, but I was his leader as an 18-year-old. Silly, but that's the role I had. And the truth is, this is the very first time that anyone had ever asked me to be a leader of anything. It was the first time any kind of teacher or minister or anyone had looked at me and said, I think you'd be good at this, or I'd like your help with this, or I'd like you to lead in this. I had just never had any of that. Um, most of my teachers didn't like me in high school for very good reason that we won't get into right now. No one had ever asked me to do this. And I was coming off a very rough couple of years, kind of the low point of my life. I was coming into my own faith, trying to figure out what that meant. I was energized by that process. And I felt some purpose and calling for the first time in my life when this youth minister asked me to come and be a part of it. I was being called and entrusted with something important, and I took it very seriously. I mean, it was a youth group. We were having fun, but I took it very seriously, and I wanted it. I wanted to do it well, right? So I met Nick, one year younger than me, but under my ministry. And Nick was honestly one of my favorite students uh, in this youth group um, that I was suddenly asked to help lead that I was a part of just you know, a month before. He was great, he was funny, self-deprecating, quick to laugh at other people's jokes, which is one of my favorite things in someone, especially if they're laughing at my jokes. He was a good friend to the other students. I didn't think he was better than anyone else. He pretty much always showed up, which was hard to find in a senior in high school. In many ways, you wish you had 10 Nicks in your youth group when you're a youth minister. But he was also different. And Nick was one of, uh, one of those uh, kids uh, that there were always kind of whispers about. Now, he was pretty involved in high school, but he was really involved in the theater department. He loved show tunes. Uh, all of his friends were female. Uh, he had zero interest in sports, and he just carried himself a little different than the other guys that I knew and other guys in the youth group. Uh, I grew up in church. Uh, when we had come across uh, guys like uh, Nick before, uh, we had a little church code word. Uh, we said they were effeminate. But we all knew that meant they weren't right. Again, I like Nick a lot. He was probably one of my favorite uh, youth there. But he was also the first person for me, again, 1993, I'm 18 years old, pretty sheltered. He was the first person I'd ever heard called gay behind their back. Again, as a sheltered 18-year-old in the early 90s, I had very little clue about what that meant. It was a very different world back then, and again, I was very naive. And yet, even though I didn't know much, my opinions were pretty solid on this topic. I grew up in church. I grew up in Sunday school. And I occasionally even listened to what the preacher said. And any time gay people were brought up or talked about, it was real bad. I'd been taught chapters and verses that demonstrated it as, to use the biblical word we talked about, as an abomination. Worth noting that a lot of things are called an abomination in Scripture, but we reserve that word for this particular idea. Now again, Nick was very kind. He was a good kid. And that was confusing for me. Because I knew what I'd been taught, and I also knew I really liked the person in front of me, and I knew I had a specific kind of job to do with him if I was his quote-unquote minister. 
My job was to show him the right way, to show him a better way, to lead him away from uh, the thing that was bad and towards the things that were good, to keep him coming to church and to tell him about Jesus and what Jesus wants for us to do, and more importantly, in Nick's case, not to do. Yes, I needed to be a friend to him. But I knew, I don't think anyone even had to tell me this, I knew that I had to keep it kind of measured and guarded. I didn't want him to think that my friendship was an endorsement of what I knew was wrong about him. So I kept an arm's length between us relationally. I liked him a lot. I would have loved to have hung out with him more and gotten to know him better, but I kept a little bit of an arm's length between us relationally. I drew boundaries. I would have loved to have been closer to him, and I think vice versa. I think he liked me too. But again, there was a barrier between, that, between us put there by me because that's what I was supposed to do. To give the full embarrassing uh, confession, I also didn't want to get too close to him because I didn't want to give him the wrong idea, and I don't know how arrogant that is. I mean, despite my best efforts at portraying availability and interest, there wasn't a single... A straight female in my vicinity that ever wanted anything to do with me, but in my mind, if I got too close to Nick, he would just fall head over heels in love with me, and that could be really difficult for him if we were just friends. <laughs> never said I was smart. So we were never as close as we could have been, and I made sure of that. I made sure to keep a distance in order to show him Jesus, and I didn't quite treat him like I treated everyone else. For his sake, of course. At the end of that first year when I was a leader and he was a senior, at the end of that first year, he graduated, and pretty quickly I lost track of him. Uh, there, there was a time when there was no such thing as Facebook or the Internet. Every once in a while I'd hear passing stories about him from mutual friends or people who kind of heard about him or knew about him. I heard rumors that he had had troubles at home, which I knew he always had that he had moved out pretty quickly after he graduated, that maybe he wasn't doing so well, or he was kind of falling in with the quote-unquote bad crowd, maybe drinking too much or abusing things. I heard all kinds of different stories, none of them I should really put too much stock in, but rumor was he wasn't doing great. But I didn't see him or hear from him or know anything about him for four, probably three or four years. And there was one night I was standing in line for a concert in downtown West Palm, standing outside this venue that had a couple different theaters in it. There's a few different events happening there that night. I was going to go see a band. I was standing in line outside because I wanted to get up to the front near the stage. And I was standing behind a whole group of people, and the person directly in front of me was a, a tall woman who was dressed to the nines, big bouffant hair, laughing a lot. Everyone was, that whole group was having a good time. I was talking with my friends. And if memory serves me correct, she turned around at some point to ask me for a light, uh, which I, I didn't have because I was a good Christian. And when that tall woman with bouffant hair and the uh, you know, ball gown basically turned around and asked for a light, I realized immediately that it was Nick in drag. And soon found out that Nick and the other folks that uh, Nick was with were part of a show that was going on in the other theater where they did a drag show, something I had never heard of at the time. There was no reality TV or RuPaul or any of those kind of things. But I recognized Nick immediately. And uh, I'll be honest, I mean, I was taken aback for a second internally but I wasn't offended or, or upset about it. Like, I was genuinely excited to see Nick. I hadn't seen Nick in four years. I, I, I really love Nick. When I realized it was Nick, I was excited. I said, hey. 
I think I might have even tried to go and give him a hug. I was genuinely excited to see him. My gut reaction was to be happy that he was there. I was happy to see him, but I clearly saw in his eyes how sad he was to see me. He feigned excitement. He was perfectly pleasant. But he kind of looked like he wanted to either throw up or cry the few sentences we shared before he quickly and abruptly kind of excused himself and left his group of friends in the line we were standing in. And I never saw Nick again. Don't know what happened to him. But I knew in that moment I felt a little nauseous as his quote-unquote minister. And it was hard to make sense of it because I knew I was right. But something was wrong. Now, there's a lot for me to unpack in stories like this, and we don't have time for you guys to all be my counselors. But here's what I know about my short friendship with Nick. At that time, I may have technically been one of his ministers, but I know, I know I failed to show him Jesus. Whatever I thought I was doing for Nick, I wasn't. And I can even now see that the faith I was practicing and holding so tightly to back then was keeping me from treating him the way I wanted to deep inside. At that time, my religion inhibited my love for Nick and did not enhance it. Like the synagogue leader, I was what Jesus correctly calls a hypocrite. I was sincere and I was wrong. I don't imagine I'm alone in this kind of hypocrisy because a lot of us were trained to do it. Like the synagogue leader of this story, I wanted to follow God in a way that was pure and acceptable and true because that was my call. Like the synagogue leader, I had chapter and verse to prove that I was right about the stance I believed I was taking on behalf of someone else. I assume, like the synagogue leader, I really believed that, that uh, how I was reacting to this person who was honestly a little isolated and hurting in front of me was for their benefit. I believed all those things, and I completely missed Jesus. And I completely missed Jesus by missing the opportunity to celebrate God's grace for the person in front of me. My religious piety got in the way of my love of neighbor. Nick did not leave his relationship with me with a clear picture of God's love. But I got to leave feeling justified and righteous for my posture towards him without having to get in the messiness of someone who might challenge some ideas that I had. It was religious, and it was in his name, but it had little to do with Jesus. And that can look a million ways for all of us. We do it in a lot of different ways. It's when we choose institution over community. It's when we choose piety over people. It is our attraction to what feeds our self-righteous religiosity over what feeds self-emptying love in our lives. It's when we choose what is easy over what is good. And I think it's the simplest thing in the world to do and one of the most difficult things in the world to recognize within ourselves. And into the scripture that we're reading uh, tonight steps this woman, stooped over for 18 years, unable to look anyone in the face like an equal, unable to see anyone's eyes or read their expressions or reflect 
their kindness. She's just different. Only seeing her own two feet and the little bit of earth around them. And this is not a day when you thought, well, someone's just got an illness. That's nothing they can do about that. Her condition is considered as much a spiritual failing as an accident of biology. Jesus even calls it a spirit. She is suffering in every way. And yet there she is, still willing to show up at the synagogue 18 years later. And somehow, for these representatives of God, in the estimation of these leaders, healing her obscures the mission. Healing her obscures the mission, and it's not the point of it. And Jesus wants nothing to do with that kind of religious practice. When all is said and done, there's a quick and easy litmus test for the validity of our own religious practices. Despite how many of us were raised uh, to believe it, the test does not revolve around how good you follow the rules. It's not about how familiar you are with the orthodox doctrines. It's not about your political party or, or your warm feelings towards God or how you were brought up. The litmus test is not about how often you talk about Jesus and bring his name up in everyday conversation, although any and all of those things may be perfectly good. They are not how you know if your religious practice is the kind that Jesus is desiring. The test is this. Does your religious practice increase your love of others more deeply and more truly? Yes or no? Does your religious practice increase your love of others more deeply and truly? Yes or no? Does your affection for and service to your neighbor expand because of your religious practice? Do you love others more because of how you love and follow Christ? If the answer to that is not a demonstrable yes, then you, like me, might be dabbling in the synagogue leader's religion. And we don't need to be dabbling in that religion anymore. The litmus test is that easy and that difficult. And I just want to close with a quote tonight. A quote from Barbara Brown Taylor who says everything uh, much better than I can ever say it. It's a quote that I love of hers um, after a life of pastoral work. She said the following, quote, The only clear line I draw these days is this. When my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. Let's pray. Our God and our Redeemer, we confess that we so often get this wrong. I confess that out of anyone in this story, I most resemble the synagogue leader. That in my sincere attempts, my sometimes sincere attempts to practice my faith, I neglect the one thing that matters the most. So God, our prayer tonight is that you might um, help us to practice good religion. 
May we be the kinds of people whose faith, whose religious practice only serves to deepen our love and affection for those you put in front of us. God, may our religion never come between us and our neighbor, and if it does, may we choose our neighbor. Lord, we are grateful that you chose love over anything else. Help us to do the same. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.